one day you woke up and there was this frog on you. You were all startled and said, Whoa. As you gently put the frog outside in horror, you turned around and there was another frog sitting on a box in your house. Then you noticed that there was a frog on the TV and on the fridge and one in each of your shoes and one was even, warning, not safe for work, in the bathroom on the toilet seat. You ran all around horrified and screaming and putting them outside where they belong when, finally, you look in the mirror and realise that the frogs were you and now you are completely locked out of your house. That was from a deliberately bad, uh, badly written creepypasta called You Were the Frogs from bogleech.com, which I think very well exemplifies some of the fun stuff and a lot of the terrible stuff about the genre known as creepypasta. This episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, we will be talking about that particular genre of online spooky stories and how it is reminiscent of a certain time and place in online culture and whether or not it has any enduring relevance today. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi, folks, you are listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and I'm here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, where I investigate stories of the strange with an attitude I like to think as being critical but not cynical. It's a warm day early in the spring. It is, in fact, one of the first days it's been warm enough for me to voluntarily sit outside <laughs> and just, just sit. I do like being outside, but all winter um, it's been nasty enough that as long as I'm moving, I'm happy enough. But yeah, for the first time this year, it's 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 warm enough to just sit. And we've, we have occasional batches of sunlight and perhaps you can hear some of the forest sounds around me. This episode, of course, all about creepy pasta. It is a conversation between myself and friend of the show, Chris Joyce, who, of course, was last with us when we talked about Alien Greys some time ago. He was on a sort of a bonus episode that I might upload, I might re-upload, uh, where we talked about sort of extended Jurassic Park trivia, kind of following on from our Michael Crichton episode um, earlier in the year. So I've got that in the back catalogue, and I might put that up one of these days but a couple of shout outs before I get to the interview with Chris so big thanks to Alison um, who I got in touch with about polar horror polar gothic I'm I would like to do an episode at some point about sort of the 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 poles in the gothic imagination because I'm a big fan of stories like the 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 poles the captain of the pole star by Arthur Conan Doyle and um, obviously like the terror is everywhere at the moment um, everyone is talking about it and uh, there's a big hype because the TV series is finally available um, on British television. So, you know, I've, people in North America have been telling me for years to watch it and I'm a huge fan of the book, uh, which I read years and years and years ago. And I remember being obsessed with this, the story of the Franklin Expedition at a time when, you know, most people hadn't heard of it and you had to explain it to people and now it's everywhere, which is really fun. So I'd really love to have somebody who's very knowledgeable about that sort of stuff. So I got in touch with Alison for some suggestions and she was good enough to send me on some great ideas. So I will quickly recommend her blog Finger Post, um, which is all about the history of sort of doomed uh, Arctic and Antarctic expeditions uh, with a particular interest in the, the, 
the, the story of the terror, the story of the Franklin expedition and all of the ships that were sent after them, all of those, uh, uh, some fruitless, some doomed, but some very sort of scientifically valuable um, expeditions as well. So big thanks to Alison, who I think listens from, correct me if I'm wrong, Geneva, which is, which is cool. I always like to hear where people are listening from. Also, thanks this week to Derek, listening from Denver, who sent us on uh, lovely coffees, which you can do as well. So if you're a fan of the show and you'd like to support us in a completely non-committal way, the simplest thing to do is to head over to buy me a coffee slash wide Atlantic. There's no weird, there was no space for it. It's just buy me a coffee slash wide Atlantic and send me um, either a, you know, it could be a small little strong hipster cup of something or it could be a big sloshy watery mess of Tim Hortons-esque juice which I will slug on happily for pretty much an entire day. I'm open to either so that's buy me a coffee. Oh yes I have a competition today. This is uh, our first competition. Exciting. Uh, The reason being I have extra copies of two research books that I purchased recently. We won't we won't say why that is but I just do and I'm going to give them out to somebody who uh, enters the competition. So let me tell you what these books are. The first one is Absolutely brilliant. This is 10 out of 10 for people who like the stuff I like. It's called Cryptozoology Anthology, edited by Robert Dace, David Coleman, and Wyatt Doyle. And this is extremely interesting, folks. This is a big, fairly big, heavy uh, paperback of cryptozoology stories from the old men's magazines, which is not something I know a whole lot about. Uh, Basically, um, you, you know, anyone who's interested in the history of cryptozoology, you've got all these kind of key important books written by, you know, the likes of Bernard Heuvelmans and uh, Ivan Sanderson. And then, you know, there's a bit of a lull and then it kind of picks up again in the 1970s. But in between, the genre was kind of incubated, un- unknown to me. This is this is new stuff to me. It was incubated in these sort of men's magazines, which were like, you know, action stories, war stories. Some of them were a little bit like kind of semi-erotic or uh, but they all have amazing covers and the the writing is pulpy but fun and there's a few interest there's some good writers here and there's some amazing illustrations and the book includes all of the the front uh, page art for the magazines that the stories appeared in and it includes all of the the like the front bit of each individual story which usually has amazing artwork in there and this to be honest i think this is where most people got their ideas about uh, Bigfoot and the um, the Abominable Snowman and uh, the the Loch Ness monster in America. Like for for Americans to be hearing about it, it's stuff like this. This is where they would have been hearing about it. So it's kind of a key part of the history of cryptozoology and how it got to be the way it is now. And you know, how come we live in a world where everybody knows what Bigfoot is? But back in the day, before it was easy to come across information, and you know, I'm assuming most people didn't read those you know, Bernard Heuvelman books, at least not very often, they were probably getting their information from stories like these. So I really recommend this as a, a historical tome and there's great stuff in it. And it's it's a kind of a lovingly put together, like it, it's all printed as if it's on old pulp paper and stuff like that. So that's Cryptozoology Anthology. The second book in the competition is called The Inhumanoids and it's by Barton M. Nunnally. Now this is a definitely a believer's book. It's written by a guy who uh, writes sort of books of supernatural and cryptozoological stuff from, I think, Kentucky. And his conclusions are odd and a little bit off the charts and uh, to be taken with a pinch of salt. But 
The book itself, I mean, that's only a fraction of it. The book itself is a, also a pretty weighty tome for a paperback, and it's just, you know, encounter after encounter after encounter of weird humanoid stories, and it's it's a lot of fun for dipping in and out of, and there's tons of stuff here that I'd never heard of. There's individual cases of folklore and 20th century kind of crypto stories that I'd never heard of, of every single kind, and it kind of spans the gamut of things that we have covered on the show before there's he, he's more interested in like the supernatural versions of bigfoot and the supernatural versions of like little people's stories and stick indians and stuff like that but he it it's there's an incredible amount of stuff in here he doesn't always cite his sources which is frustrating so i mean this book reminds me of reading charles fort to be honest or even colin wilson where he just rattles off all of this insane stuff you know one after the other after the other and I don't recommend this book for sort of research purposes if you're trying to come to any conclusions about what's really going on. But when it comes to assessing the lore and assessing what do believers really believe when it comes to this stuff and what conclusions do they come up with, um, I think this is an interesting take on, you know, where the genre is at right now. And I do recommend it for that reason. So that's the Cryptozoology Anthology and the Inhumanoids. So what do you have to do to win a copy of one of these books? You need to track us down on your social media. So that's either on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And all you have to do is, well, follow us if you're not already. Uh, share the post if it is on uh, on Twitter. That's a retweet. You can't really do anything similar on Instagram. And I want a just uh, one comment on the so you you have to find this competition on the tweet so i'll make sure that's out there by the time you hear this you might have to scroll back a little bit but uh, i'll retweet it a couple of times during the week and uh, yeah put a comment just telling us uh, where you're listening from we don't need we don't need your address i just want to know what what country or what region because it's always fun to find out where people are listening from so that is at Strange Ireland on Twitter or Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast on Instagram. Find us, share it if you can, and a little quote saying, hello, I'm listening from blah, blah, blah. And that's all you have to do. Now, our beer for this episode. This is a good one. This is a Kilkenny Red Ale from Brehan Brewhouse. It's lovely. A good red ale should be a little bit, a little bit sweet, a little bit syrupy, malty, but not too much. I'm making it sound like, you know, overly sugared coffee. But a tiny little amount of that flavor really goes a long way uh, to match with the bitter. And this one does it very well. So that's Kilkenny Red Ale from Brehan Brewhouse. And all of their all of their can art is really lovely. It looks like um, old-fashioned woodcut prints. Anyway, that's enough uh, preamble. Let's get to the creepypasta. So in this episode, myself and Chris Joyce are having a conversation uh, about our memories, our personal takes. And we try and do a little bit of analysis on the sort of long-standing effects and influence of this once popular but now forgotten and maligned genre. Right, Chris, here we are. How are you? I'm good, Kian. Thanks for having me back on the show. Uh, I hope you have your chef's hat on because there's uh, some creepy pasta on the menu tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on that one all week. Uh, we are presently uh, having a little campfire because that is, of course, the, the traditional place in which to tell spooky stories. We are somewhere on the West Cork coast 
um, it's getting dark we have a little fire and we're actually looking out onto the darkness enveloping the atlantic ocean so it's a uh, it's a, it's a creepy uh, it's a creepy location chris i hope there isn't any anybody out there on the dunes behind us uh, going to give us a nasty surprise in the middle of our spooky storytelling no, but uh, it's uh, it's getting to be a, a silage or slurry season in uh, West Cork, so it is uh, <laughs> uh, quite quite a prominent s- uh, smell that gave me a surprise once we made it out here. And yeah. uh, the, the rain is uh, looking like it's uh, going to come in heavy as well. Those are two far more realistic uh, dangers that we might we might suffer. <laughs> We're here talking about creepy pasta, Chris. Do you have memories of this from? Because, because really my thesis here is that it's a remnant of a particular time and place. It's kind of like circa 2010 was probably the apex of it. If you go back and look at the, the dates for the, the crucial stories and anyone I've asked about it this week generally said, oh, you know, I was into that for a while and I haven't thought about it in about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have memories of this from kind of that time or another time? Well, uh, I mean, kind of growing up in kind of internet starved uh, kind of broadband starved Ireland uh, kind of 2006 2007 onwards I, I always kind of I suppose remember surfing the web at, uh, at college in Cork City and you'd end up on all, all these sort of message boards and, and all the rest and you'd, you'd start to see these little kind of pieces start to kind of creep in and uh, you'd be kind of reading a few bits and pieces on your lunch break Um I, I, I suppose I can't really remember exactly when I first came across Creepy Pastor, but I, I remember the likes of uh, Imager, uh, I-M-G-U-R. And, yes, uh, yes, I remember that. You'd see kind of screenshots of kind of spooky tales, and uh, I, just, I, I, I distinctly remember not knowing if they were real or not, because I, I suppose I didn't really read that much of them back in the day, It's uh, but I, I did start to kind of read them a, a lot more. Uh, as, as it kind of went along. I think that's crucial, the, the not knowing whether they're real. And I think that's what makes it different from other kinds of internet fiction, other kinds of horror stories. And that's what links them to urban legends and, and other kinds of, like, you know, earlier oral folklore, as, as I think we'll get to. I myself am probably a little bit old for having been the right age when, when these were doing the rounds, you know, when, in, in their heyday. I definitely liked them and I wanted... It was always a thing I wanted them to be better. You know, I was like, I loved the, the, the concept of these weird stories that show up and you're wondering whether or not they're real. But I was a little bit too old to be, I think, taken in on it. I do find it primarily a somewhat juvenile genre. And I don't mean that as a derogative. I just, I think primarily most of the interesting creative stuff was done with this um, by, by younger people, by, by kids and teenagers. Yeah, and, and that's especially apparent if you look at maybe some of uh, today's um, uh, creepy pastas, <laughs> if that's the right word. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, back in the day, there, there was, with some of them, for me at least, uh, it was kind of like, oh, I wonder, is this actually coming from, you know, the some kind of block in Eastern Europe where something awful <laughs> has just happened? Uh, but now, I, I mean, it's really a vehicle for people to uh, expose and explore their own kind of... Uh, your you know literary talents and you know that that's only a, a good thing as far as i'm concerned yeah I, I think i think um one of the themes about this talk is going to be that 
you know, I mean, 90, 99% of everything is crap, as the saying goes. <laughs> and and uh, with, with this stuff in particular, even even the well-regarded ones, even the ones that are well-remembered, that we're, we'll talk about the, the quote-unquote classics of the genre, um, they're not traditionally well-written, but that's not the point. You know, like, they, they exist outside of kind of taste and, and, and you know, literary trends or whatnot. Um, and, and that's kind of what's interesting about them is that they don't, they're good despite that, you know, because what, what's important about them or what can be um, influential about them, what, what can have an influence on you is the feeling that this is a real person telling you a real thing that happened to them, not yeah. a polished author telling you a polished tale. Absolutely. And on, on that, do, do you think yourself that there's a format for a creepypasta or? I think there are tropes. There are absolutely tropes and we, we will absolutely get into that. I want to talk briefly about the origins of the name, just in case anyone out there isn't aware of this. Um, way, way back in the day, I mean, I remember chain letters, actual chain letters. Like, I remember getting those occasionally when I was a kid. Um, and then there were chain emails, you know, which said things like, send this to 10 people or, you know, this ghost girl will get you and there'd be a picture stolen out of, like, <laughs> Ringu or something. <laughs> and um, this this turn of phrase, copy pasta, used to be used because it's a... They used to call it copy-paste, which were these stories that were copied and pasted for, from email to email. And then that, that phrase seems to be gone. Nobody uses it anymore. And then because of misspellings, it became copy-pasta. And mm-hmm. then the particular version of these stories that were passed on, again, like folklore, that were spooky or kind of horror story influenced, were eventually called creepy-pasta. So it's funny. Nobody says copy-pasta anymore. That I mean, you'd have to explain that to somebody, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, uh, incidentally, the the inventor of copy and paste, uh, uh, Larry T- Tesler, uh, Larry Tesler, even he actually died last year, on uh, February sixteenth. So, there you go. Well, he can die a happy man. Copying and pasting <laughs> is very useful. <laughs> Absolutely. So, um, I, I, to me, I find this a, a kind of a relic of a particular time in internet culture. It's a bit of a what they call like early web 2.0 i don't know if you've come across this idea before huge apologies to any listeners who are like actual it people who will be furious about me misstating all this stuff but like to me i i I peg it to around 2002 maybe 2004 when like the internet went from a thing where only kind of professionals could make stuff like you are at least to make websites you have to you had to know a lot of like I I learned Dreamweaver to make websites yeah. and that was incredibly complicated and then Web 2.0 is the point at which kind of anybody can contribute and when that's when Wikipedia takes off, uh, YouTube, and um, obviously other other uh, forums I suppose where people can just post uh, whatever they want and this feels like an early an early iteration of that because it's it's before YouTube really takes off. And but b- b- because of its delivery key, and it, it seems like something that could have existed back in, you know, uh, early '90s. You know, <laughs> just just because so so much of it are, are just uh, they're they're just text files. You know. Yeah, it reminds you of something that, you know, you might have had pushed through your letterbox or seen at the back of a magazine or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose I, I would have always thought of Web 2.0 as, you know, specifically. Uh, high volume or not well large kind of media uh, files being uploaded to the net but uh, y- you're you're definitely on the ball there it's it's I suppose that like the web becoming more participatory and yeah yeah uh, 
suppose like Facebook, MySpace, Bebo, all that sort of thing. Good old Bebo. So it's it's both an, an IT uh, boundary, but it's also a social boundary. So it's like what changed in the technology, but also how did people use it? And I think at this point, sort of like 2007, 8, 9, when the really big creepy pastas are all written um like this even though they're simple text files that's still the easiest way for people to contribute because like youtube in the early years do you remember you could only there was a 10 minute limit yeah that's right and and part of the um the, like the reason like w when it's text files you, like you could really set up an anonymous uh, account on any sort of message board and just paste it and that sort of adds to the uh, the unknown, as it were. I ha so there is some um, academic writing on this as a phenomena. I'm going to read a little bit from the abstract for a paper. This is called Creepypasta Candle Cove, which is one we'll probably talk about, and the Digital Gothic. And this is by somebody with a, a bit of a challenging name. It's, it's Jessica Balanzetta-Gui. My apologies for, for butchering that. But the, the abstract is really interesting. It says, throughout the past decade, this is from 2019, Throughout the past decade, a multimodal type of internet storytelling has developed that extends upon the early Web 2.0 viral narrative practices of chain emails, all right, okay, uh, as well as pre-digital folkloric storytelling traditions such as the ghost story and the urban legend. Uh, this popular mode of digital storytelling, broadly known as creepypasta, is produced and consumed according to folkloric practices the author suggests that a precise genre has emerged out of the originally wide-ranging terrain of creepypasta, a generic mode con constituted of specific thematic preoccupations and aesthetics that she refers to as the digital gothic. Uh, through analysis of the foundational story Candle Cove, the article outlines the digital gothic's anxious preoccupation with dead and residual media and with the interface between technological and personal change and also she talks about how it deconstructs nostalgia which i think is going to be important and um, there's a huge element of nostalgia in almost all creepypasta i think mm -hmm. um I, I think what's interesting there as well it, like it, it's when you mention you know like the, the the talk of contemporary gothic it really reminds me of a lot of authors who would have had their uh, work published back in you know the early 1900s or the the late 1800s as as sort of episodes uh, in in whatever journal or or newspaper. Yeah, and they also take on the what's that word epistolary the epistolary format that like Dracula has, which is look I'm uh, obviously there it goes back much older than that, but that's a famous Gothic example where it's like look I'm a person telling you a story. Yeah. You know, and and or or if creepypasta often takes the form of like you know a mysterious found document. You know, this is a a VCR that I found with a weird black mark on the outside of it, and then I put it into my player, and this is what I saw. Or you were reading the the found journal of somebody who was murdered in a forest, and then the rescue people found this journal. You know, under the pine trees. Yeah, it's, it, there's it's two so things going on. It's both. It's both. It's both the, the preoccupation with nostalgic uh, formats like VHS and tapes and stuff like that, um, and, and and also the found the found footage, you know, feeling which which I'm I'm going to get to eventually. That I, I think found footage cinema is like one of the maybe descendants of this. Mm -hmm. And it's it's almost always trying to give that that the reader that sort of vicarious uh, experience in in whatever. Uh, kind of role that the uh, protagonist or <laughs> in, in many cases the antagonist is is uh, in 
Yeah, and like I, I'm just looking at my notes here, so I have like the fact that on a practical level, most of them are badly written, but under the right circumstances, they can still be very effective because it's not traditional literature, it's something else altogether, and it's supposed to remind you of, of a spooky campfire story. It's supposed to remind you of that uh, liminal world bet you know, between something that's clearly fiction and something that might not be, you know, that might be real. Mm -hmm. And I think if, I think you're very lucky if you've ever experienced this, you know, I in the right time and, and the right place in a way where you're open to it being real for even for just a moment. I think that's because that's harder and harder to, to achieve nowadays with with the internet. Absolutely, uh, e these days you you require all sorts of uh, additional photographs or um, you know video footage uh, that is still also kind of subject to debunkers and and all the rest. But you know back then you know a story was quite effective even in simple text form. Not to say that people are <coughs> tremendously good at telling <laughs> true things <laughs> from not true things nowadays. We're, I'm not making that case. But like, if you if you really want to find out, you know, you can quite quickly. Like the difference between, and again, this is found footage, but like the difference between when the Blair Witch Project came out in 1999, and I remember being like, is this really real? And being kind of hooked by the you know the documentary that came out with it, and there was a website that you know made it sound real and. You know, there wasn't any quick way of of checking that at the time. The difference between that and do you remember that um, that UFO film that pretended to be a real a real case in was Alaska, the fourth uh, kind with uh, Mila Jojovich? Like the difference that was two thousand and nine, maybe like when that came out, and you could just it, you could just check it immediately. Yeah. And they, you know, they, the, the studio tried to do the whole oh this might be a real thing, and it didn't get them anywhere because you know times have changed. Mm-hmm. So um, let's talk about like the, the typical creepypastas. I asked around on the, the social media to see if people had any memories of them. And most people sent in, like, I, I, I kind of thought people might try and, oh, here's, uh, here's a really you know, hipster one that nobody knows about. Most people sent in the heavy hitters. So let's just quickly mention some of the, the obvious ones that everybody knows about or that you, you'll see straight away if, uh, if you go Googling this stuff. And I, I just want you to know, notice the dates on these. So... Like, it, it's it's shit, but uh, <laughs> the one called Jeff the Killer seems to come up always. With that, uh, it's more of a it's more of an image than a story. Like the image is that guy with the white face and the the cut the cut mouth, and uh, it, the story is ridiculous. And it, it reads like it was written by a ten year old, and it's like a kid who gets attacked by bullies, and they there's different versions of it, but the usual version is like he gets burned or Burn, they, yeah. they burn him yeah with vodka and then his face is like turned into like the joker from <laughs> tim burton's batman <laughs> yeah and he just is a is a serial killer that's from 2011 so i guess slightly late in the game um ben drowned was mentioned by a few people that's now this this is a classic creepy pasta theme which is preoccupation with kind of turn-of-the-century video games. <laughs> turn uh, of the millennium. Zelda, if I remember correctly. Was yeah, it? And yeah, the N64 um, Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which I do remember, not as well as I remember the one before it, which was... Uh, I'm almost the right age for this, to be honest. Because uh, <laughs> I have good memories of Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, and I had an N64. And if you think about the, the time period, this one is 2010, right? Imagine you're a kid and you're about 10 at the turn of the millennium, then, which is, is, is a bit younger than me. But then 
10 years later, you're kind of 19, 20, you're in college, you know, you're just old enough to be nostalgic about something for the first time, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. That's what I think is going on here. So, like, for the first time, people of the kind of 18, 19, 20 are writing stuff online and they're having memories of when they were a kid 10 years earlier and the preoccupation is with that kind of media from the pre-digital age. Mm -hmm. So uh, Ben Drowned is the one where the kid finds the haunted N64 cartridge <laughs> and it turns out that there's a... I'm making it sound ridiculous. It is better written than than some of them <laughs> it, re it reminds me of that book uh, or that that movie where the kid goes to the the library during the storm and there's a book that's haunted or the page master there you go <laughs> there you go i, d I but don't this know this is a classic haunted artifact story you know which yeah, goes yeah. back to any number of classic ghost stories and or indeed uh, your 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 own podcast actually Kian. I, I didn't you do a, a, a kind of a found audio <laughs> footage at one point <laughs> yeah. for the uh you you found a tape from early two thousands, I think. Oh, that was our um, was that our uh, time time slips episode? That's the one. That's the one. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I'm within the age range for this. I'm a little old, but uh, I'm old enough to be nostalgic for it now. The same way Ben Round was <laughs> nostalgic for the N sixty four in uh, two thousand and ten. So so that's a really. That's a really famous one, and a lot of people mentioned that one when I asked online. And it's basically—it's really long, and uh, I have thoughts about like how effective creepy pastas are based on how long or short they are. Like I prefer the short, sharp ones that are more like old campfire stories. But there absolutely is a market for these like really long ones that like go on and on, and they have sequels and. and oh and yeah, yeah. Like, I I I prefer when the author is unknown and. You know, it, it just kind of blends into the culture and it becomes a story that gets passed without really knowing where it came from. But a lot of the authors can't help themselves and they, they, they need to turn them into these, like, massive epics, which, I, I don't know, for me, horror well, and epic... It, it <laughs> kind of... De it, it destroys the, the, the whole premise a little bit, I think. When yeah. You're, you're doing yeah. Uh, sequels to something that's, uh, you know, so supposedly found footage or found document and... Oh, we've just uh, got uh, another installment from 1993 that we're going to read. <laughs> well, I, I think that sense of disbelief, which is so important and so hard to manufacture, I, I think you lose, like, the longer it goes on, the more of a chance you're going to lose that. It's such a delicate thing. Yeah, and, and I, I suppose, look, all in all fairness to the website creepypasta.com, you know, it's great for showcasing people's writing talents and everything, but... As soon as you see people referring to it as creepypasta or referring to the, the website, you're, you know, the, there's no coming back from that really, is there? Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. So like once you're seeing it in that context, it's different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It also sort of reminds me of, um, re remember there's there's those kind of uh, kind of t uh, story challenges, uh, tr you know, try to write the saddest story or the most frightening story with... Uh, you know, one, one sentence and ten words or something. Have you any, ever seen any of those? No, is that, a, is that a thing from school or is that an internet thing? It's sort of an internet thing. Uh, I, I suppose it, it kind of, maybe it runs alongside Creepypasta, I don't know, but it, there'd be kind of like, uh, you know, you get the odd message board sending out, try and write your, the, the scariest story or the, the saddest story with three lines or something and you might have yeah you know like a for sale children's shoes or something <laughs> oh yeah yeah that yeah um yeah. i'm so I, i've got four kind of foundational stories or maybe five um so we said jeff the killer which is rubbish ben drowned which is 
genuinely interesting like the twists and turns that story goes through are, are genuinely interesting and I, I don't know I, I can't imagine what it's like reading this if you're not familiar with that particular game because I think the creepiness comes from the way he uses the twists in the game you know right I think he's using his knowledge your knowledge of the game against you the, the Russian sleep experiment is considered a classic one I believe you're going to talk about that later yep that's certainly will that's from 2009, so very much the same period. And then, of course, Slenderman, who's kind of the, the, the breakout character for this whole genre, he is created in 2009 as well. And uh, probably Ted DeCaver have... You, Ted, Ted DeCaver. Ted... Ted, <laughs> Ted, Ted <laughs> yeah, DeCaver. from Kerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out, out the Schkelligs. <laughs> that's another... Yeah, that's another oft-repeated one where, like... It takes place over many days and many weeks on somebody's like live journal or something, uh, and so like you, people would have been keeping up with the story every week back in the day, which I you know got to imagine must have been kind of thrilling. Back when you didn't know whether it was real or not. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You see these kind of posts kind of coming in out of nowhere, and and it's is is it a bit like the movie The Descent, where like a guy is going to these underground caves, like in the American. Appalachians or something, and he discovers a race of creepy beings. Yeah, there's he starts to see all these kind of hieroglyphs and winds coming out of strange kind of uh, cracks in the cave and things like that. So I'm going to read another quote. This is from a book called Slender Man is Coming, and it's um it's like a set of academic essays by people talking about creepypasta it's from 2018 the authors are blank and mcneil and this is just kind of like a definition which i liked it says creepypasta is in short creepy copypasta more specifically it is an emergent genre of internet folklore that involves the creation and dissemination of a particular style of creative horror stories and images targeted and circulated primarily to and by younger audiences Creepypasta draws on the disturbing, monstrous, strange, grotesque, or unknown, while invoking the thematic and structural qualities of legendary narratives, including the use of personal narratives, which I find is very important in these stories, ritual, um, familiar and real settings, um, and accompanying air of plausibility. That's important too. These are not horror stories that take place in, you know, imaginary fantasy lands. The the, the horror kind of comes from the fact that it sounds like something that might really have happened in the real world. Emanating from the bowels of internet forums, wikis, social media, and websites like 4chan and Reddit, the creepypasta genre has been sustained in large part by the repeated sharing or reposting and further buoyed by subsequent discursive commentaries. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. the, um, the especially the element of realism which is important and like we're, I think already we're establishing kind of almost a set of rules like it has to take place in the real world it's almost always first person narrative um, you know there will be a haunted artifact or maybe an element of nostalgia and there will be something about you know retro technology like tapes or VHS or N64s and um, I don't know if you're, I'm not sure if you're familiar with No Sleep but like, No Sleep is uh, a subreddit which writes creepypasta-type short stories. They don't always like being compared with creepypasta, but, like, the phenomena is extremely similar. But they basically, they, they admit that it's all fiction, but they pretend that it's not. So mm -hmm. they are actively searching for that sense of disbelief, and they have this long set of rules, which is, f which is stuff like, 
everyone pretends that this stuff is real don't break the suspension of disbelief and then they have a set of rules as to like what the stories need to be like and it's all it's just what we've said you know it's st oh, it has to be taking place in the real world it can't be something crazy and fantasy that you could disprove by looking at the news you know yeah um I'm, I'm not so familiar with those but it sounds like uh some some things i've seen that kind of start with uh be me uh generally the story might start with be me be 18 years old be living in wherever this right this sort of thing happens to me or whatever and it's it's a community of generally the writing um quality tends to be better because it, it tends to be people who are kind of more serious about writing, even even as hobbyists, um, and they, they tend to write a lot and they tend to try and improve their craft. So the, uh, it, it's more like slightly better written horror fiction, but you can tell by reading the rules, they're desperately trying to recapture that sense of, you know, uh, suspension of disbelief that a genuine creepypasta would give you. And the difference between coming across the, a story on a forum like no sleep where ultimately you know it's not real or, or being seeing them in like if you're in a reddit for like you know uh, real life weird stuff that happened to me or you know stories about stalkers or people getting lost in the woods you know there's reddits <laughs> for all that stuff and you're going through 90 percent of it is kind of interesting but ordinary and then there'll be one of those tucked away you know and because it's in a different context you want to your brain wants to believe it even if it's like something supernatural mm-hmm and uh, you've pick, picked a great week for me to, to research this, Keen, because I've I've had a few creepy pasta moments myself. Um, before we get on to actually talking about the the, the various stories, um, I, I've been taking some long walks recently through kind of uh, 16th century graveyards uh, near my my own shack, and. Um, there's all, been all sorts of spooky things going on there, so uh, thank you for <laughs> picking this week in particular to have these stories bouncing around my head. Right, uh, that sounds like the beginning of a, of a story. I also live in a <laughs> an early 18, uh, 1800s um, corner house, and there are some uh, unexpected things happening around the place. Well, um, <laughs> if you see any uh, N64 cartridges, don't don't play them. <laughs> I found an old uh, Sky router for, for the internet, so who knows, I might plug it in and start getting <laughs> some sort of communication from, from somewhere. But uh, knowing that there was something rattling around on the roof for quite a while, and uh, I was uh, really not sure what it was for a long time. And uh, I, I danced with the idea of going up into my attic and taking a look uh, at which... Uh, my girlfriend's uh, <laughs> said that there there may have been uh, a little boy up in the attic uh, and not to go up there and so uh, I, I left <laughs> the uh, the noise on top of the ceiling um, turned out it was uh, the, the chimney hat which had fallen fallen off and was just rattling around over my head I've had similar things happen with bats I, I was working um, in a, for a laboratory in, in, in Central America years ago and I thought like my room was haunted for a couple of nights because of things that the curtains were doing, but it was like a fruit <laughs> bat that had gotten stuck in them. Yeah, and like, I, like I, I certainly don't hallucinate, Kian, but I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> the lady does protest too much. <laughs> I find it very easy to be able to um, 
imagine what seeing something creepy would be like. Uh, and so I end up uh, kind of freaking myself out around the house quite a bit. So <laughs> we're in quite an old house and then some of the, the furniture is certainly left over from, uh, you know, quite a while back. And uh, one of our wardrobes have, has these kind of little curtains on it. Uh, in, in these little windows it's almost like a, a, co- a confessional box and uh, I can almost uh, picture somebody inside the wardrobe just uh, creeping back the curtains to look out oh I yeah I've just been writing up a, a sort of uh, creepy ghost priest <laughs> story for an article <laughs> oh no plenty of those yeah plenty of those around so I have a list here of um, stories where like instead of sticking to the and th- these are classic creepypastas that didn't stick to the like short and sweet format. They like kind of got out of hand and people started to make other media for, uh, you know, for them or about them. And I, I just thought that was interesting. So Candle Cove, we've mentioned already. Have you come across that one? Uh, I've seen the name. Uh, again, I, I think you th- the thing is, like, I, I would have probably read an awful lot of these over the years. But going back to try and research and, and remember which ones I was reading... It's quite difficult, as you can imagine. This this one is um, it's pretend. It, this one is very well written. Now, the guy who wrote this, Chris Straub, is quite a serious writer, in in like internet turn. Like he's written a lot of this stuff, and he he clearly works on his craft. And um, I think I think he he probably is more like a, a proper like a. I'm being I'm being snobby with my language, but you know he's like a a, pu- a published horror author in how he approaches things, and yet he still has that. He's something about what he does is very effective in the creepypasta way. So Candle Cove is is written as this um, forum board with people talking, and they're on this like nostalgia, nostalgia.net board, and they're talking about old creepy kids TV shows that they remember from you know very local channels. And uh, and I know that he he had a particular show from his childhood in in America somewhere in mind. But I think this happens around the world, doesn't it? That kids TV shows, especially stuff with puppets and, and that tend to especially when they're for low budget very local stations do you remember when rte cork used to do the children's programming in ireland on uh, during the summer yeah i i was actually in that set uh i I took a visit into the studios once uh what was it they had some sort of uh food truck or something uh which was part of the set and i I remember going to see that and what was it called this not the swamp it was something yeah there was was something there was a show called the swamp and they showed uh, a program with this horrible like these creepy puppet people living in a guest house and this (laughs) at night time this like I, i think it was like a stuffed toy that came to life and was doing evil things but only one kid could see it and nobody else could see it it was a bit like the way, you know, in Zig and Zag when, when Podge and Raj came into it first and, and they've since gone on to be in loads of different programs over the years. But like originally they were like really horrible, nasty anthropomorphic dolls who were like the bad guys on a kid's show and were quite traumatizing for a lot of young people. Oh, really? I so, knew. yeah, ah. yeah. So that's what uh, Candle Cove is playing on. And basically these people are remembering this kid's show from some small time network called Candle Cove and... It's all about this like weird puppet kid on a pirate ship, and <laughs> the pirate ship talks to him, and the face on the ship is made of foam, and wants him to go into this creepy cave, and there's a, a skull face guy in there, and like it turns out that the program was never broadcast, and all the kids were just like staring into static. And oh no! 
It's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, it's good though. So this this got made into um, an episode of a show called Channel Zero for sci-fi, which, you know, we're going to talk at the end about like, well, what, what were the repercussions of Creepypasta? What what has it left on the world? What imprint has it left on the world? And mm. it it broke out of the ghetto on in a few occasions into sort of more mainstream media. Um, and, and stuff like the did you did you ever read the <laughs> the NES Godzilla game? <laughs> no. <I laughs> Again, the, the obsession with the old video games where this kid is playing like Godzilla on the NES, like the old <laughs> Nintendo, and and he's like, but then I fought a monster who wasn't usually in the game, and like he made all these images for the game for all the different, and he fights through like hundred levels of fighting these weird creatures, and it gets stranger and stranger, and all the uh, artwork for it's really good, and somebody made full video of the game even though the game wasn't real but now it is you know and someone made videos for like the Ben Drowned N64 stuff yeah I'm gonna talk to you about another video game one uh, in, in just a second well in that case Chris let's scoot to the so the next section is like we've done an overview we've talked about some of the kind of classics I want to talk a, a bit more personally about like which ones do we like ourselves which ones do we feel actually were, were very effective uh, for us whether it was like the time and place we read it or something else about it sure so i i, I suppose like the first one i can definitely think of is probably one of the more well-known ones um and it was the first one that i remember reading and i i, I can't really remember if it was a if i knew it was a creepypasta at the time but I, I sort of had uh, I, I definitely came away from it with a feeling of what if this is real and it's true what you say it's it's very hard to replicate that feeling and I, I don't believe that any of the others have kind of replicated that for me uh, ever since um, and it's called the, the, the Russian sleep experiment which you mentioned uh, previously there um, just let you know as well I, I you know I kind of took in you know, four or five uh, different creepypastas this week and I decided to maybe do a bit of an experiment so uh, two of them I read and two of them I listened to on kind of an audio uh, an audio retelling yeah, there's a whole ecosystem of people reading creepypastas on YouTube yeah I just wanted to know if there was any sort of difference between you know uh, kind of reading it on paper as it were and uh you know yeah. listening to it but the the russian sleep experiment basically uh is is the what what date was it it was 2010 i think um and it's it's again uh i, I remember as a journal kind of format <coughs> it's talking about uh some political prisoners in the the bowels of uh kind of a, a soviet test facility um I, I think it's set in the 1940s or it's, it's certainly not in kind of modern day anyway and it's uh, sort of a, uh, kind of a notepad uh, what, what was the word? A pestic <laughs> a, like a journal kind of a document document style there you go that's the one um, so the subjects uh, in these political prisoners they're subjected to um, all sorts of kind of torture and things but per one is a, a sort of a gas that's released into their chamber um, which causes them to stay uh, awake um, and eventually the the test subjects in in this chamber um, kind of blot out the, the windows so that the researchers uh, don't really know what's going on inside 
Uh, now, I, I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't read it, but uh, let's just say that you kind of uh, start to come across each of the te test subjects one by one or in, in twos or whatever, and there's all sorts of terrible things happening inside the chamber that I will not go into right now. Very nice. Well, my first one is very short, and I'm going to just talk it through, really. I will spoil it, but it's it's almost... It's more like a campfire story than a, a, a true creepypasta. And I was told this at a campfire in, in, out in the prairie in Oregon in about 2008. And, and it wasn't until years later that I saw it on creepypasta forums. But it, I, I have found it dating back to there. I think it's older. In fact, it's definitely older than digital storytelling. But this is about the, the camping and the photographs. So this woman is you know camping in some part of the Appalachians and she you know she stops off at the gas station to to get a, a warning off a creepy guy <laughs> who says like oh you know there's lots of uh, strange <laughs> folks in these hills you don't want to go wandering around by yourself and she's like no no it's fine I'm I'm able to look after myself and she's a so she's a photographer and she goes camping for two weeks and she has also she has a great time she's taking pictures of all the cool stuff she sees and, and nothing goes awry and then when she's at home she's uh doing her own um developing her own pictures she has her own dark room and uh, she's p putting up all the pictures and uh, right at the end of the reel she finds four pictures of herself asleep in the tent that she didn't take herself oh no oh yes <laughs> <laughs> so those are the kind that i like they're just kind of short and they have a little snappy end and they're not that different to what you would hear around the campfire you know years yeah. beforehand uh, next up for me was uh, let's see which one will I tell you about I listened to this one on audio it's a, it's a new one as well I just I decided to listen to two old ones and two new new ones uh, this uh, didn't appear to have really any sort of title I found it on Creepypasta and uh, it starts with the, the lines uh, I am a cryptozoologist oh that's some I like to hear that <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's uh, it's about this guy who was working at um, a paper for, for an awful long time. And uh, he was fascinated by these reports of um, creatures and encounters with the strange that started to come into his desk. I think it'd be a really good setup for a movie, actually. Um, is and a bit of a spooky motor? He was, but his boss wouldn't allow him to investigate uh these oh, government these stories so uh he, he quit the paper and he started his own cryptozoology um uh, kind of um business i guess and uh, famously uh, lucrative uh, thank you <laughs> and so um there was one particular uh, uh animal or uh creature that uh, enthralled him called the moss man uh, no, this is set in England. This is not the Mothman with a lisp, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. No, I, I, like from the sounds of things, like uh, it's a guy in in kind of a, like a top hat and a suit that kind of grows moss on him. <laughs> but uh, I, I, as far as I can tell, it's set in England. Uh, I'd have to re-listen, but um, he basically goes on a hunt to to try and find the Mothman with. Um, his his friend in tow, uh, the the moss man does uh, capture them both, and that is when the, uh, the I suppose the like the creepiness here isn't really in the the monster or anything like that. Like the creepiness or the the sort of the the butterflies or the stone in the stomach moment is when 
they're both being held up against a tree by the the moss man and uh the the narrator uh bargains with the the creature to basically like <laughs> kill his uh his best friend leave the body and let let the fella go so that the uh the moss man's nest wouldn't be you know uh hunted down by the angry villagers <laughs> so uh there's a bit of kind of like oh my god th- like the the actual evilness there is in the the, the person basically uh, sacrificing his own best friend. Are you saying that the monster was us all along? That's certainly not what I'm saying. <laughs> no, <yeah. laughs> well, it, it could be what this guy was saying. Anyway, I, I'll send it on to you. Recommend giving it a, a, a listen or a read. Okay, my next one that I quite like, I forget the name, didn't write it down, but this, I think it's probably fairly well known. This That is could be a title as well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> This is the one where the guy goes to a motel and he's like on business or something, but there's a storm and he has to unexpectedly, you know, stay at this rural motel. And the woman at the desk says, you know, oh, you can take this room, but don't go into the room down at the end of the corridor. (laughs) And he goes into his room and I hope I don't mess up the order here. (laughs) It's crucial. (laughs) He goes into his room and I, I think at night he hears like, you know, pitter patter footsteps or something. So he gets up and there's nobody in the corridor. And so he goes down to the room at the end. He looks in through the keyhole and he sees uh, this woman lying as if dead on a table. Mm-hmm. But she's not moving. So, you know, she seems to be dead, maybe or sick or something. So he goes back to his room and he hears more pitter patter out in the corridor. So he goes back out there and uh, he sees that there's nobody. She's gone. She's not there anymore. There's nobody on the table. So then he goes to the, he goes to the front desk. Oh no! I'm going to mess this up. <laughs> <laughs> he goes back to his room and he hears the pitter patter for the third time. So he goes back to the room, and looks in the keyhole, and this time he sees nothing but white. And he's he's weirded out. So he says, "I'm I'm not here." So he packs his bags and he goes back to the front desk and he says, "Look, before I go, what's what's with the room at the end of the corridor?" And she says, "Well." The, the guy who owned this building before us, um, he kidnapped his wife and tortured her and left her body in there. And uh, we've kept it in there ever since. And he says, oh, I, I think that matches with what I saw. And then she says, there's one last thing, though. Because of the amount of crazy torture he did to her, it turned her eyes completely white. <laughs> <laughs> when you, when you kind of recount them, sometimes they come across as a bit. <laughs> yeah well it's like don't think, don't think about it too much you know <laughs> yeah yeah but no I, I i i love reading them certainly uh the, the the next one will we go on to the next one yeah let's do one more each uh well actually i, I think i should probably do two more well i look there, there was sonic.exe oh, <laughs> again the video game obsession <laughs> yeah it was uh like it as it was a little bit juvenile and yeah video games nostalgia everything like that um guy finds a, a you know gets a cd with a, a video game sonic video game from his friend who says not to play it i don't know why it showed up there in the first place anyway but uh he starts playing it and he can see all the the characters in the game except sonic is missing from the the range of characters you can select and he starts playing the uh the game and um yeah, you can see uh, all the characters like Tails and Knuckles and Dr. Robotnik, Robotnik, 
Dr. What is that? Dr. Eggman in the US. Um, they're all. Uh, Dr. Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> you can see that they're all very worried as like the, the sprites, the characters in, in the, um, the video game are very worried. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, there's an evil Sonic uh, basically running the game and uh, kind of subjecting all the characters to all sorts of awful things. Right. Oh, uh, is that is it one of those ones where like there isn't so much a plot? It's just like a very long litany of, you know, creepy or disgusting things happening. Yeah, I mean, like it's the the, the sort of the horror horror rule of threes is there as well. You know, he starts playing with tails first, and there's a little bit of bad stuff happening, and then he starts playing with knuckles, and there's even more bad stuff happening, and then Doctor Robotnik. That's when you sort of find out what's what's causing all the trouble and. You know, uh, but but really, yeah, it's just him talking about playing the video game. Um, <laughs> do you want to go? Right. Go yeah, for I'll one. Do, I'll do my last one. Is called the. I do know the name for this. It's called the portraits. So this is one where a guy is, he's a hunter and he's out in the woods and, um, again, he he think he gets lost and he can't make it home in time before it gets dark and starts thundering. So when he finds this like creepy cabin, he decides to. <laughs> sleep in it for the night as you do <laughs> of course yeah and um so he finds this bedroom and uh you know it's fairly nice considering the building is abandoned and he's he's get, going down to sleep on the bed when he just notices there are like these four creepy portraits on the wall you know looking down at yeah. him from both sides and uh there's these people like in the middle of the portraits with like weird skin and big eyes and they appear to be looking at you but, you know, he manages to just, like, turn over and try and ignore it and go to sleep. And uh, then when he wakes up in the morning and the sun's out, he sees there's no portraits in the room, but four windows. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> I have those uh, those in my house, too, but I call it a mirror. But um, um, the, the last one, that are you are you finished with that story? Yes, that's that's yeah. it. The the last one I'll talk about is is a quite a new one that was released uh, 9th of March 2021 um on on creepy pasta uh now I it's called it had my mother's voice now there doesn't appear to be much nostalgia in it other than there's a mention of working from home which I I presume in a while could be nostalgic um <laughs> I hope but so. <laughs> the, again, the rule of threes for horror. Uh, the guy, this guy, goes to his mother's uh, kind of country estate to to work from home. Um, the first first night or a couple of weeks in or something, he goes out and he sees there's a fire and he hears all these voices. He trips in the earth and the fire disappears. Uh, he goes back into the house. He comes out the second night or the, the third night or whatever, and he starts to see people. Uh, all around um, the the campfire there as well, and they appear to be kind of dead people or zombie, uh, well not zombie victims, but or not zombie people, but they appear to be dead from various uh, methods, and they start trying to follow him back into the house, and then the third day then is uh, is kind of the the big reveal, um, but. <laughs> I suppose the thing that sort of made me a little bit uncomfortable about it, it was a little bit topical for the wrong reasons in that, um, you know, it involved, uh, it was set in England again, and it involved, um, you know, a, 
kind of a, a, a girl being murdered, which uh, of course is in the news very sadly this this week. So I was kind of like kind of came out around the same time. So I was like, I think I'll just leave that one and uh, not talk about it as much. Yeah, well, fair enough. I mean, like in a way, we've talked about how these are primarily written by or for traditionally anyway i don't know what the current contemporary version of this culture is but when it was at its height i think it was very much a young person's thing and there were there were some ways in which i mean like lots of us are fascinated by horror it doesn't mean we're terrible people but like young people are fascinated by you know forbidden things and gross things and scary things and that's why the preoccupation with you know serial killers and murders and all these terrible things um, and, and some of it, I think, is kind of fake edginess, you know, like, I'm mm-hmm. going to write a story where, like, you know, 100 babies get shot in the head, you know, and it's uh. like, well, <laughs> you know, I'm, a lot of the forums actually outright ban stuff that's just pointless gore. It's you know? sort of almost uh, not, not pornographic, what's the, the word? If it's uh, just completely it's, over It's gratuitous, like. There we go, that's the word. And, and some of that is just teenagers getting their getting their angst out, you know, and that's perfectly normal. Um, and then, and then, some of it is is teenagers, you know, dealing with their own fears and anxieties in 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 a way that's effectively harmless, you know. So, mm-hmm. I try not to be too judgmental about stuff like that. Um, so, like the themes overwhelmingly are like whether you're looking at the variety that are, you know, oh, when I was a kid five years ago, <laughs> you know, yeah. I miss I miss these video games, or whether it's like the found footage and the epistolary format and the note taking kind of obsession. Or the cursed artifacts, which is, I think, kind of an element of classic, you know, horror stories. Or just like there are so many stories about lot being lost in the woods or, you know, I found a spooky abandoned cabin or, you know, this traditional, almost hackneyed kind of horror lore. It reminds me of, you know, I, I work with kids and um, a lot of do, do, doing campfires and, and kind of outdoor activity stuff. And like a lot of the campfires, I like I like to ask the kids, you know, does anyone have a spooky story? And inevitably, that it's like a garbled version of some horror film that they've heard about, <laughs> or a video game that's popular. So, like when the It film came out, all their stories were like every single kid ghost story was there was this there was these kids and they went into a spooky house, at, and it was midnight and there was a clown, and and no one ever saw them again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or like another year, all their stories were about like Five Nights at Freddy's kind of you know yeah yeah spooky animatronic robots. <laughs> There's a bit of an evolution of uh, creepypasta that I, uh, I was told about today uh, by my girlfriend. She said uh, to check out uh, Dear David. Have you heard of this? Yes. Now, that was that took the format of, like, Twitter stuff, didn't it? Exactly. But, uh, no, I have yet to, to read read it all or kind of read much more uh, about it. But, um, yeah, it seems to be like a, a creepypasta via Twitter yeah, and I, I understand it's a guy talking about, like, you know, this is like he's telling a ghost story that's happening to him via the medium of his tweets, right? Yeah. And and that kind of leads me on to, like, you know, because because this was such a 10 years ago thing and it was briefly in the mainstream when kind of Slenderman broke out and people, I think people who didn't care about this stuff at least knew who, what Slenderman was. And mm-hmm. um, then there was, obviously, was it 2014, there was that stabbing in... Um, it was a town called Waukesha, which is in Wisconsin, where, like, these two young girls, like, viciously stabbed a friend, like, 19 times with a kitchen knife, believing that. It's, they, they were, 
I mean, one of them definitely had like some form of schizophrenia and, and the other one had something else that not quite right. So it, it's a complicated case and the degree to which, you know, Slenderman does or doesn't fit into it is, is debatable. But hi folks, editing key in here with a, a bit of an aside. I think it's worth mentioning that with the Wisconsin case, there, I think there probably was more of a link to the Slenderman story than I was mentioning there at the campfire. Um, as far as I know, the girls involved had a fairly tenuous uh, attachment to reality and had come to believe that Slenderman lived in a mansion in a, in a woods near their house and would grant them some kind of power if they were to offer him some kind of sacrifice. Now, while the link is stronger there uh, than you might expect, what is not as well remembered is that there were a number of other cases, um, you know, around about that time where the media made connections between these crimes that happened and things like Slenderman, because I think it was just in the ether. I'm going to read briefly from uh, Slenderman is coming once again. They write, after the attack, the media attempted to link other stories to Slenderman as well. On June 6th, 2014, Cincinnati television station WLWT posted a story to its website detailing another stabbing, this time of a mother by her 13-year-old daughter. The mother herself, after learning about the events in Waukesha, suggested there might be a connection to the fictional monster, citing references to Slenderman in her daughter's writings. Two days later, a husband and wife in Las Vegas shot and killed three people before killing themselves. A neighbour told reporters that the husband had frequently dressed up as Slenderman. And in September, a teenage girl in Pasco County, Florida, set fire to her house with her mother and brother inside, both of whom fortunately escaped. Sheriff Chris Noco told the press that the girl had visited the site creepypasta.com and had even written in her journal about the Waukesha stabbing. The flurry of news coverage focusing on Slenderman and real-world violence and the cautionary statements to parents have a whiff of panic about them. In a Newsweek piece on the attack, writer Abigail Jones noted, a rising cultural panic this case seems to encapsulate. The response to what these girls are accused of doing reflects our deepest anxieties about girlhood, technology and the growing gulf between parents and their children. So yeah, a little bit of a bit of a smell of a social panic off that, which might remind you of other cases like uh, Satanic Panic stuff, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know, fears of Satanic messages in music, any number of silly and completely false uh, media hype things. I'm reminded particularly of the sort of anti-Doom, anti-video game stuff after Columbine in 2001. So uh, I, I would approach these cases of, of linking... Um, attacks to directly to Slenderman with a little bit of caution. I think unless you know a very a very large amount about the case, I think it's not in good faith to take one element of someone's interest and point out uh, to that as being the main instigation for the attacks. I'd say that's for, for good or for ill, that was the high point of kind of public knowledge about this stuff. But I just wanted to say, you know, nowadays with me asking people well, we're, we're doing this episode and everybody's saying, oh yeah, I haven't thought about that stuff in 10 years. Is, has, is there any legacy left behind or is it just nostalgia? Like this movement, it's still going, going on in some parts of the internet, but is that just, is it just powered by nostalgia or does it have any relevancy anymore? Um, it seems to me that it's, it's, it's mainly kind of nostalgia based and people are kind of looking up. And, and then the other factor is just people wanting to, to write and 
wanting to contribute. Um, yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, maybe to, to quote this Irish Times article on, on uh, Dear David, uh, just uh, I'll read the last uh, uh, line there. Some tabloid responses have spent the subsequent week querying whether or not Ellis's work is true or fake. One wonders if they might develop less respect for cinema if they ever found out The Exorcist had a script. <laughs> I like that. I, I also like that you're, you're basically taking this conversation into the next evolution, if you like, which is actually, upon reflection, I think it has left a mark, and I, I think it's, it's in different media. It's the same kind of storytelling that's happening that's happening in different media. So I have a look, just a short list here of like ways in which they've affected kind of the greater culture around them. So there was a Slenderman film that came out years later and it was way too late and nobody cared. Yeah. <laughs> and th the moment had absolutely passed. I think what happened was after the real life incident, it got put on the long finger and no studio wanted to release something that had had that effect on reality. And then by the time it finally did get made, um, nobody cared. There is a film, and it's on Netflix, and it's called Mercy Black. I watched it this week, um, and it's based on the Slenderman stabbing case. Now, there's a case to be made to say that it's a bit trite to take such a thing like that and turn it into a kind of middle-of-the-road horror story. I genuinely thought the story had some interesting wrinkles. It's a very low-budget, fairly-by-the-numbers horror movie. Uh, it's Blumhouse, you know, <laughs> and it's on Netflix, but... There's some there's some interesting stuff in it about uh, about survivors and how we deal with survivors and how we deal with kind of children who commit crimes and uh, where these kind of stories come from. I'm not going to go out on a limb and say it's good. I enjoyed it because of my interest in this stuff. Uh, some people might find it a bit tasteless, which you know I understand. There is a bit of a community online for kind of creepy pasta adjacent. Uh, indie video games so there was the haunted ps1 challenge basically like these indie developers usually like just one or two people who make simple horror indie games and they're very influenced by old video games you know because that style is easier to make when you're on a small team mm -hmm. but also that's what they grew up with so it's often very often like ps1 style graphics yeah. Um, but the stories they tell are very creepypasta-ish. You know, it's like one person, you're playing one person who's who's lost in the woods or one person who finds a creepy abandoned house or it's all have very influenced by Silent Hill and that sort of thing. Have you played the Slenderman? Uh, I remember the eight pages. <laughs> no, uh, I, uh, that was the online kind of video game. Yeah, I did. There's millions of them actually, but I, I that was one of the first ones that I knew about. It was the eight pages. You're in this forest. And you have me looking over my shoulder right here. <laughs> collecting these bits of paper. It had this quite effective spooky mechanic where he would appear, and if you looked at him, your yeah. vision would go squiffy, and then you would die. So you had to, like, not look at him. Yeah, that's right. And uh, <laughs> that was terrifying to play on your own. Yeah, and, and like, there's millions of those now. So that, that was quite influential. Um, there's a whole you know indie genre of games where you're just in a dark place with a sh flashlight and something is chasing you and that's all there is to it you know because it, <laughs> it's the same reason horror movies are effective they're they're cheap to make and it doesn't require much but they can still be done badly or they can still be done very well you know yeah 
so I'm finally I'm going to mention a website I like called Go the Ghost in My Machine, which is a blog, and the woman who runs it collects uh, basically what you're talking about, like online kind of more recent social media versions of creepypasta type stories. So she goes on TikTok and finds like that, the, you know, quite young people often are telling ghost stories via the medium of short videos. And what, like, is it ASM? Is that the term for like these kind of live? ASMR? No, not ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> There's some acronym <laughs> for like, uh, like live action. It's not LARP, but like where you watch a video and there's a story and then you can get yourself involved in the story by like solving a puzzle and then that takes you to a website and so there are, there are web series that uh, tell stories in this way and again the storytelling is all very creepypasta reminiscent it's always you know I'm one person uh, in my house and I started to hear this weird thing or you know I saw something online or I played a video game that did something strange so oh cool yeah, yeah. I'll send you the. I'll put the link um, in the in the show notes. That's called the Ghost in My Machine. There's some really interesting stuff on it. Yeah, I'd be interested to give that a, a, a listen or a, a read. Cool. Any final thoughts, Chris? Anything we didn't mention that you'd like to talk about? Uh, well, I'd sort of like to talk about that noise in my attic. <laughs> we might leave that one for uh, <coughs> for the patrons. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you drinking tonight, Kim? Uh, it's a fine red ale. It's a Brehan Brewery. I recommend it. Well, I'm drinking a fine, cheap lager called... Well, it somehow made its way here to the uh, the wilds of West Cork through the, the COVID blockade, but uh, it's Pratsky. Oh, oh Pratsky. Oh, the, the, uh, yes, it's a, it's a very high regard, highly regarded beer, isn't it? Absolutely. So, um, it, it, with that in mind, Chris, do you have any creative projects online or is there anywhere people can find what you're up to? Yes, yes, I do indeed. So, number one, I'm going to maybe try and relaunch my YouTube channel. Not that it was launched in the first place or <laughs> had any sort of uh, kind of going concern. But I, I'm, I'm going to maybe tidy up my, my YouTube page and start putting up some uh, uh, music uh, stuff. So, I have a music video hopefully coming out soon of a, a cover uh, I did of a Pink Floyd song so I'm excited about that um, we've also remixed uh, two of uh, two Vox Possible songs which is a band I was in about 10 or 12 years ago um, and again look the band's not getting back together <laughs> or anything <laughs> like it but uh, we'll maybe do a little re-release of that and let people uh, listen to the the tracks as we uh, originally envisaged, envisaged them. So that's uh, one's called Eyes for the Boys, and the other is called Why is my head gone blank? <laughs> Big Boy Beastie. Those sound excellent. I'll put links to all that stuff in the notes. Chris, thanks once again for speaking with us. You're very welcome, Keen. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to another episode of Wide Atlantic Weird. Just to tidy things up, please don't forget we have that awesome competition. So if you would like to win yourself a copy of Inhumanoids or Cryptozoology Anthology, get in touch with us on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or over on Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast on either platform. You uh, can follow us, 
share the post and uh, put a little message on there just telling us that you're listening and what country you are listening from. Uh, And don't forget, you can also support us online by doing reviews, by sharing an episode with somebody who you think might like it. And as always, you can send me on a coffee over at buymeacoffee forward slash wide Atlantic. So until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.